Let's stand together, take your hymn books, and turn to 121, 121, at the cross, 121. sing 561 I love to tell the story amen 561 
song, the second page of your hymn books, page two, Holy, Holy, Holy is our God, amen, page two, Thank you. 
Father, we thank you for each one that is here, and Lord, we ask now that you take this service once again, and Lord, use it to draw us closer to you and to give us a better understanding of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, and just want to go over a couple of things um, with all the construction, everything going on. We're running a little bit behind in the month of April. And so uh, the worker schedules are on the visitor's table. So if you are used to being on the worker schedule, uh, stop by, pick one of those up on your way out. And if they run out, see me or say something. We'll try to get those. Um, Did not check uh, the calendar close enough. April 29th, we were going to have a family church fun night. That is the anniversary of Brother Sharavia and Iglesia Baptista. They're going to need the basement that night. Uh, And so what we'll do is we're just going to consolidate uh, our ladies' fellowship and our church family fun night and do that on Good Friday. So we'll have a uh, Good Friday service, but it will be uh, very similar to what we did in... um, February it'll be for everybody so and we'll start at seven o'clock and just bring some uh, food with you and we'll we'll get more details as that goes along and uh, if we have anyone uh, with good strong backs and weak minds uh, Tuesday night we're going to be trying to put the steel up in the basement and so we uh, uh, I thought we were going to have to update our permit and go through part of that process again. We don't. Uh, the uh, deputy commissioner gave us a little out, and so uh, what we're doing is instead of making our own footers, is we're getting them made force, and half of the work under our permit's almost done. Once we get the steel up, that's about 85% of the physical labor that we're going to be doing with the baptistry. And so I want you to pray that Tuesday night the steel gets put up safely, carefully. We have about a 110-pound beam that goes 11 foot in the air right underneath the baptistry. And uh, then we got to cut and weld the columns to hold it in place and anchor them to the cement. Uh, and don't go down to the kitchen, please. Uh, it's blocked off. There are holes in the floor, holes in the ceiling. Uh, it is a mess. Uh, kitchen is off limits until we get the steel up and the floor filled up. So uh, pray about those things if you would. Uh, if we don't get that done before the uh, 22nd, there won't be much of a fellowship, I promise you. So uh, pray that we can get those things done. Brother Mike and Brother Sharavia are at a fellowship meeting in, in uh, Connecticut, uh, Vernon, Connecticut, uh, tonight and tomorrow. And pray for... Uh, the Newburgers, uh, especially that he'll be able to start raising support and getting churches to uh, uh, help them out. Uh, we met a fellow out of Brother Palman's church. He's been on deputation for three years, and he is only around 45, 50%. And many of the churches that started supporting him say, you're never going to get to the field. Now they're dropping him, and uh, time is critical. And uh, uh, Brother Newberger is scheduled in a lot of churches, and we were talking about the other day, he needs 60 churches to support him. Now, that 
may not sound like a lot, but it takes the average missionary three to five years, and normally what they'll do is they'll get 35 or 40, go to the field for two years, come back, and then pick up all the rest of it. Uh, Brother Mike and Kelly won't have that opportunity. They need to get what they're going to get first time out because they're not going back out again, Lord willing. Uh, they're going to stay there and pastor that church just like has happened here at Open Door. And so we want you to, to really begin in earnest praying for them. And, uh, of course, all of the other things that are on your calendar. And, men, don't forget we had the best attendance we've had at men's prayer meeting in a very long time. Uh, and I don't know about how many other people felt the difference, but I sure did. Uh, in the service Sunday morning. And so, men, we want you to be there at 9.50 and pray for the morning service. And if you are the wife or child of one of those men, uh, be patient, come early, and uh, uh, allow them to be here and pray for our church because it does make a difference. And I would appreciate your prayers, our family. Uh, How many of you remember the Ferrans? We supported them while they were in Sri Lanka. Uh, Brother Ferran is now the pastor of Calvary, yes, Baptist Church in Niagara Falls. And he was he started talking to me last fall and said, when we have our missions conference, I want you to come up and, and present the Baptist Church Planners, which is our New York State Fellowship, and preach. And uh, that's tomorrow night. So we got to be on the road, and everybody's going to go, I think, that's here. So we're going to be on the road, hopefully... We're shooting for 6.30, drive up to Niagara Falls. we got service Friday night, and then Saturday morning we get up and do it again to get back here. And so really, really appreciate your prayers uh, for that and safe travels um, and uh, so that we'll be back here and ready to go uh, Sunday morning and not have any, you know, I don't, I don't like coming into a pulpit Sunday morning like this, so just pray. Uh, that the Lord will give strength. So, Brother Franz, come and lead us in that last song, and then we'll get right into our Bible study tonight. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me, Jesus loves even me. Though I forget him and wander away, still he doth love me wherever I stray. Back to his dear loving arms would I flee, when I remember that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, I am so glad that Jesus loves me, Jesus loves even me. Oh, if there's only one song I can sing, when in his beauty I see the great King, this shall my song in eternity be. Oh, what a wonder that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me.
Amen. And you may be seated. All right. Tonight we're going to do very similar to what we did last week. Uh, one difference is instead of shining the timeline on the board, I shrunk it all down and fit it on one page. Uh, some of you were here. Uh, in 1999, according to my records, was the last time we went over this information. And so that was a few years ago, uh, which means we'll probably get it out and do the entire study again. Uh, but we're not going to get all eight weeks of, of this study uh, in the next uh, 40 minutes or so. But uh, what we're trying to do is give an overview uh, we do believe in a dispensational understanding of the Scriptures. And what we simply mean by that is God has dealt with His people. He has dealt with us through His Word uh, in different dispensations. Uh, dispensation does have a time element, but time is not the primary element, the the word that is in the Greek language that we get the English word dispensation from is the same word we get the idea economy. And so what we're talking about here is a general way of understanding and relating to God. And that has changed through the Bible. And uh, oftentimes, this is the reason why people say, well, the Bible is a contradictory book. Why doesn't God uh, deal with us the same way he did with Adam and Eve? And why don't we take sacrifices? And why don't we worship on Saturday? And, and, and what normally happens is, as we understand the Scriptures, uh, men are famous for, uh, this is just a little phrase I came up with, is comparing apples and oranges and extolling the virtues of grapefruit. Uh, you can't add apples and oranges because they're different kinds of fruit. And when you do take things that don't go together and try to add them, you get something entirely different. And this is the reason why most quote-unquote theologians and, and most people who write about the Bible... And uh, many churches over the years have developed a uh, schismatic or a fractured theology. They have a God that operates one way over here, and then he changes his mind and operates a completely different way over here. Uh, the vast majority of Protestant theologians are what we call covenant theologians. They say God acted one way, in the very beginning, and then he changed his mind and acts completely contrary. Uh, a dispensational approach solves that problem. We do not believe God changed his mind. And what I attempt to show in this chart is, we're just going to do an overview here, is that when God starts started something, he didn't change what he started. He fulfilled many aspects of that, and as those things were fulfilled, they allow us to see in a picture or a living illustration how God is working. Now, 
Uh, one thing I just want to touch on at the very beginning, you see that nice big red line that goes right through the middle of your chart. And this is what we call the scarlet thread or the line of blood that goes from the Garden of Eden all, way, all the way to the great temple in the middle of the earth during what we know as the Millennial Kingdom. Um, this line here is the theme of the Scriptures. When Adam and Eve sinned, God killed animals and made a covering for Adam and Eve. In the temple, Ezekiel's temple, as we look at it described there and we try to figure that out, the only place that it fits that we know about in the Bible, that temple has not been built yet, is going to be during the millennial kingdom. That will be the temple during the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. And they will offer sacrifices very similar to what was offered in the Old Testament in the temple of Ezekiel, but the focus will be completely different. In the Old Testament tabernacle and under the law, every sacrifice pointed toward the cross. In Ezekiel's temple, every sacrifice will point toward the cross, only it will be backwards, not forwards. We will understand even more than we do at this time. Now, I want you to take your Bibles here, and we're going to open up to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And in the next few minutes here, we're going to try to uh, just touch on different scriptures all the way. It is not a mistake that this verse is the first verse in your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heaven, I'm sorry. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, what we have here is, number one, God is presented without explanation. You know why? You can't explain God. That's why. God, as God, is the supreme being. He is introduced to us first in the book of Genesis as the creator. By the way, did God ever stop being the creator? No, that's impossible. What he created still exists. And by the way, maybe we can just review this real quickly. If you believe in evolution... Uh, I just want to challenge you to examine what you have to believe in as God. You say, well, evolution, I don't believe in God at all. Well, just a moment. Where did the things come from? Oh, well, it was this big cloud of gas and it all swirled around until it exploded and everything is now coming out of that explosion. And, of course, my favorite line is, if that were true, then Iraq ought to be the most developed country on the face of the earth. Isn't that true? Uh, we've dropped an awful lot of ordnance there in the last 15 years, and uh, they're still rebuilding things and will be, because when something gets bombed, it doesn't, when it explodes, it doesn't create more order. It creates disorder now, doesn't it? But the question they can't answer is, where did all that stuff come from to explode? 
So either you must believe in the eternality of God as the creator and the source of all matter, or you must believe that matter in and of itself is eternal. And so the way I like to put it, and hope you don't mind the pun, is either your God is the God of the Bible or your God is dirt. Your God's a bunch of rocks. Your God's a bunch of, of things that just swirled around in this cosmic chaos and all of a sudden order came out of it. Now, if you can believe that, please see me after church. We need money for our missions program and I'm sure you'd be happy to buy the Brooklyn Bridge for a good price. Amen? Uh, I don't know how people believe that kind of stuff except for the simple fact that it has now been repeated so often to deny it, you become a radical. Uh, it's, there, there's a few things that you cannot oppose in this culture of ours. One is evolution, the second is abortion, uh, and the third is any type of moral standards. If you try to bring any of those things in, you're going to be branded as a radical lunatic Say what you want in the beginning, God. That never changed. God is the creator. God created man and, and woman in his image. They had a soul that had a free moral will. Choices could be made. And God set up very clearly in these first two chapters of the book of Genesis, that as the Creator, God was interested in what was best for mankind and that He demanded man's willing obedience to His Word. Never once did He put an angel in the garden with a great big sword in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to scare man away from it. He said, I want you to make a free moral choice that you will obey me. And of course, we know what happened. Eve was deceived. Adam was not. That's why the book of Romans said he was in the transgression. God blamed Adam. I can't remember who it was. Oh, I think it was uh, somebody was telling me about the religion of Islam. They want to blame sin on the women. That's why they're dangerous and they've got to be in a burqa and all of these things. And God doesn't blame sin on the woman. He said she was deceived, but the man wasn't. He knew exactly what he was doing. God said, for by one man sin came into the world. It's kind of interesting how false religion picks up on all of these things and tries to blame Someone else. They were expelled from the garden. Why? Because there was another tree in the garden, the tree of life. According to the Bible, if man had eaten of that tree, he would be forever locked into his sinful state because he could not die. That's why he's withheld us, all these generations and all these millennia, from eating of that tree we will not have an opportunity to enjoy that tree of life until we get the other side of death that we may have eternal life with our Savior. And so we have God setting this up. Now we get to Genesis chapter 
4 and 5, and we have the story of Cain and Abel. How was Cain and Abel supposed to uh, operate or offer to God? And we come and we find that when God expelled Adam and Eve out of the garden, uh, let's just cover that. I skipped over it. We mentioned it a little bit here. But in verse 21 of chapter 3, it says, Unto Adam also... Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. We have the first death of these animals, of animals right here. Adam and Eve were covered with the skins of those animals. This is the first blood sacrifice in the Bible. Somebody said, where in the world did Cain... And Abel, where did Abel get the idea that he was supposed to bring the blood of the lamb and offer that on his altar to God? Well, how did did Adam and Eve get their clothes? By God killing those animals and making a covering for them. This is the picture. The death of the innocent provides a covering for the guilty. We will see that illustrated all the way through the Bible until we get to the reality of that truth when the death of the innocent on the cross of Calvary provides a covering for our sins so that we can be set free from the death that we have earned by sin. Do you see how your entire Bible becomes one book as we understand things in this Mode in this dispensational idea. And by the way, we'll just throw this in. I have a good friend and fellow that we talk talk sometimes about the Bible and things. And he said, that's your problem, Brother Pete. He says, we use dispensationalism to build doctrine. I said, no, we don't. Doctrine comes from what's written in the Scriptures. Dispensationalism is simply a man's way. It is a method of understanding your Bible. Keep it there, and it will keep you out of trouble. The dispensational understanding that we're looking for here as we go through allows us to take a simple and literal understanding of each and every passage in the Scripture All the way through, we're not trying to explain away Adam and Eve as representations of the human race or as some kind of fable that was made up to illustrate a point. They were real people that lived in a real garden and really ate of a real fruit. And what was that fruit? Well, it was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't an apple. It wasn't any other kind of fruit. It was unique to that tree. When I was in Bible college, I had a professor one time in a class, and he was one of those tricky guys. He was all the time trying to get people to doubt the King James Bible could be the Word of God in the English language. He was all the time just slipping little things in. Uh, they fired him, praise God. I had to take him for one class. Dispensationalism. That was not a class I wanted to take with Professor Walker. Here's why. 
he began talking about the offering of Cain, and he said, I just want you to think about this. Maybe God didn't accept Cain's offering because it wasn't a tithe. Now, does that sound just a little strange to you? It ought to. Because we don't see tithing mentioned until we get up another one. But the basis of your salvation is not in the tithe. Unless you're a Mormon. Uh, It's not in the tithe. It's in the blood of the innocents. And the only time I ever argued with a professor was when he started that. And neither one of us won the argument. Uh, I was told to be quiet, but he didn't bring it up again either. Amen? And so the simple truth of the matter is the reason why we put this dispensational approach to the Scripture is because it allows us to keep that scarlet thread, the sacrifice of the innocent, all the way through the Bible from beginning to end without contradiction of terms. If you tried to divide up your Bible into the covenant of the law and the covenant of grace, you're going to have lots of problems. You're going to have lots of passages that you must give spiritual meanings to or allegorize in order to make them fit into the, uh, uh, the framework of covenant theology. God accepted um, um, Abel's sacrifice. God's judgment came. By the way, it's still painful to have a baby, ladies. Genesis chapter 3. It's supposed to be. God always comes seeking man. It's not man that goes seeking God. Every once in a while I meet someone, but I've been a Christian all my life. No, no one can be a Christian all their life. There must come a time when you're born again. There must come a time when you allow God seeking you. And you say, well, God never sought me. Well, who gave you the gospel tract that brought you to church? Who helped you understand the Bible so that you knew what it meant to be born again? Let me tell you, all of those things are God's way of seeking you. And when you surrender to them, guess what? You get saved, and then you can start serving the Lord. By the way, there's no church in the Old Testament. It was the nation of Israel, and we'll get to them in a few minutes. Now, at the end of this second dispensation, the dispensation of conscience, we have God's judgment. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, one of the great verses in the Bible. Verse 8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God describes the sinful state of man. Man was supposed to bring his sacrifice to God. Man corrupted himself so much that God sent a flood. And by the way, it wasn't a local one. It was one that was worldwide. The only survivors of that flood were those animals and persons that were in the ark. We have... God's Word tells us that. They were in that ark just a little over a year. When they get off of the ark, God changes some things. Let's go to Genesis chapter 
9, Genesis chapter 9. Now God's going to bring up some things here. He's going to give them some commands. He's going to tell them to be fruitful and to multiply in verse 1, replenish the earth. He's going to put the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. You wonder why animals are wild animals. It's because God made them that way after the flood. He also gave meat to eat. Now, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, uh, I'm not here to debate your cause, but I am here to tell you that God said that man would have to eat meat. Now, there were some changes after the flood. Uh, We don't have time to go into it tonight, but I believe dinosaurs existed. I believe God created them. And we're not afraid of the dinosaurs. But a brontosaurus, they tell us, could eat, uh, I, oh, now the figure just went out of my head, but it was tons of green leaves every day in order to sustain itself. What would happen to that dinosaur when the season changed and all the leaves fell off the tree and all of the green things froze up in the wintertime? It's called starvation. These animals would not live as long as they did before the flood. Man would not live as long. God also institutes something here. He says, verse 3, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as a green herb have I given you all things. But the flesh with the life thereof, which is of the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Now, there's a big thing, big debate today, and it's been going on for years, that capital punishment is evil. That is not true. God institutes capital punishment, hence human government. Right here, as Noah gets off the ark, God says, listen, you're going to have to organize yourselves. You're going to have to make a society because if you do not check your behavior, what happened before the flood is going to happen again. And God says, I'm not going to let that happen again. And as bad as things are, They're certainly not as bad as they were before the flood, where the thought of every man was only evil continually. Could you imagine what the world must have been like in the days of Noah, before he got on that ark? The violence and the immorality and the evil. God said man is supposed to check man's behavior. Someone said, well, then we shouldn't fight a war if man can't kill a man. This is not talking about protecting oneself. This is talking about murder. When a person commits murder, the Bible says the penalty ought to be their death. America was a different place when the death sentence was in full force. It's interesting 
that as we rescinded the youths of the death penalty, all violent crime has gone through the roof. You wonder why. You see, there would be no such thing as a serial killer if the death sentence were invoked. He would only do it once. And, of course, the great plea is, what about the innocent people? Um, If we lived in a just society, there would be very few innocent people being put to death. Because how would you be in the wrong place, doing the wrong things, having the wrong motive, at exactly the right time to commit a murder? Do you you follow what I'm saying there? It would be very difficult if society really enforced these things to convict the wrong person of the crime. And by the way, should there be someone who is so evil as to set up a quote-unquote frame or try to get someone else, the Bible is very clear that they're trying to commit murder They should suffer the penalty that they sought to put upon others. We come down here to the time with Noah. And by the way, God makes a covenant with man. He puts a rainbow in the sky and he says, I'll never destroy the entire earth by water again. And so we see God making an agreement with man. God is now codifying his words and we continue moving through the time man chooses to do what? We're going to build a city unto God, the Tower of Babel, the city of Babylon. And God has a lot of things he pronounces. He confuses the language. We get to Genesis chapter 12 and God chooses a man. His name is is Abram. God will change his name to Abraham. God will bless him. He will give him the promises of the nation and the promise of the coming Messiah. By the way, God has not turned his back on the nation of Israel. You read the book of Romans. He has Set them aside. He is not dealing right now. We'll get to that when we get to law, I mean to grace, as he dealt with them in the past. But they have not lost their position as his chosen people. God told Abraham, whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless them. Whoever curses you, I'm going to curse them. Let me give you just a little bit of history. How many remember the nation of England? Before World War I, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. It said that the sun never set on the British Empire, and it did not. They controlled India. They controlled many islands far-flung all over the world. And let me tell you where England went. Things were better than where they weren't. Yes, there was oppression, and yes, there were problems, But many of the worst and most horrible evils that mankind committed against mankind were solved by the English Empire. How many of you have ever heard of a document called the Balfour Declaration? Lord Balfour of England was trying to make a homeland for the Jewish people. This was 
World War I. He did not do it. The British Parliament and people voted against Israel. And before World War II, England was no longer the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Look what has happened to America since America has not supported the people of Israel as they should have. It's going down. You bless the Jews. God's going to bless you. That's what... That's just a promise. God made that to Abraham when he chose him. And he gave Abraham a promise that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That in the seed of the woman, there was going to be victory over the seed of the serpent. Now we see God defining that and said it's going to come out of Abraham's family. God makes a covenant with Abraham. God gives him the sign of circumcision. He gives him different things. And Abraham and his uh, uh, family after him follow uh, these things. His grandson Jacob takes his people into Egypt where they are there for 430 years. During that time they are made slaves and God judges the nation of Egypt for cursing the seed of Abraham. When God was finished with the land of Egypt, There was nothing left. No army, no trees, no crops, no animals, and no firstborn to carry on the next generation. God wiped everything out in the land of Egypt. History tells us that Egypt entered into a period much like the medieval period, Dark Ages, and it never became a kingdom and had the power that it had before the time of Moses. The children of Israel come out of the land of Egypt in Exodus, and we come to Exodus chapter 5, I mean, sorry, Exodus chapter 20. And God gives his law to his people on Mount Sinai. Thou shalt have no other gods before thee. Before me, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20, I, verse 2, I am the Lord God which brought, have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment number 2, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Now many times if you see the Ten Commandments printed today, they take the second commandment out. Now, why would somebody want to take that second commandment out? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Well, certain religions have what we call a statutory, where they have all these statues of people, and you revere the statues. In fact, they tell us the toe of the statue of Peter in the Vatican City has to be protected because so many people have kissed it. Their lips have worn away the concrete and the or whatever that statue was made out of. Can you imagine that? And yet, it says here, Thou shalt not make any sta- unto thee any graven image. Now, the Greeks, they got this thing all solved. They do not make graven images. They just grave beautiful artwork around pictures. And they call them icons. And they do everything to their icons 
that the uh, others do. Hey, listen, and the Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox do the same thing. Iconography or, uh, is the same as the statutory. And by the way, I even heard of a thing, I've never been there, where this was a Baptist preacher, and behind his pulpit he had a little piece of carpet that he would stand on when he preached. And when he passed away, they took that little piece of carpet and put it in a museum so everybody could walk by and see the carpet that Dr. So-and-so stood on when he preached. I'll tell you what, I believe that's breaking the second commandment just as bad as having a statue. I really do. I get tired of that stuff. We don't need to worship men. God set that up on Mount Sinai. We worship God and Him alone. We do not revere any one person except the Lord Jesus Christ. 613 commandments in the law. God gave us the written Word of God at that point. God directed how sacrifices were to be made. He then made a very uh, complex system that had to be carried out to the very letter by the priesthood that God established under the law. And every sacrifice pointed to Jesus Christ. Uh, By the way, did Abraham stop being the father of promise? No. Did the seasons, did the rainbow, the capital punishment, did eating of meat, did any of those things change? No, they just continue on. Uh, Was God's judgment still against sin? Was God still accepting the blood of the innocents and sacrifice for sin? He most certainly was. Uh, Is God still the creator? Yes, he is. Did God institute marriage? Uh, We skipped over that one. In the Garden of Eden, he did that. Did God still expect man to exercise his responsibility in his free will and choose to follow God and his word? You see, what I'm trying to uh, put here is a stair step. Every step goes up. Every level in these stairs are built upon what is before it. When we get to the dispensation of grace in which you and I live, the reason why we call it grace is because Jesus Christ fulfilled every one of those 613 laws and then he endured the judgment of God for us. It's exactly the opposite of what happened with Noah. All of mankind was judged and the only one that escaped was Noah because he and his family were in the ark. Now Jesus was judged for all of mankind and all of mankind can escape if they'll trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how the symbolism and even the pictures lock in together in such a way that these things could not happen by accident. And we're not talking about a book that was written to describe what was happening. We're talking about a book that was written to tell us what was going to happen long before it did happen. This is why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Amen? And God is going to end this time with an event called the rapture where he pulls the church out so that the man of sin, the man the Bible calls the beast or the Antichrist, can be revealed. 
Because if he were to show up today, every one of us who have the Lord Jesus Christ living in us would open up our Bibles and say, he's the fake. But God's not going to have the witness of his church to identify the Antichrist as the fake. It says that if it were possible, he would deceive the very elect. The world is going to accept him. If you study world events at all, what are we waiting for right now? Is not the entire world posed for one central figure to come and bring peace? How many rulers would lay down their authority if they believed that one man could bring peace to the earth? Let me tell you, every nation in Europe has already proved that through the European Union. They have laid aside their authority and their sovereignty to many degrees so that they can bring peace and economic prosperity. By the way, what is the Antichrist going to provide? It's the economy, stupid. How many of you have heard that during the last campaign? Do you think that our president would hesitate for a moment to surrender the authority and sovereignty of this nation to a man that he felt could bring true peace to the earth? Let me tell you, the world is poised. Now, that doesn't mean every person in every nation is going to do that. Read the book of Revelation, which we will. There's going to be quite a struggle involved there, but please, 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 If you've watched the Thief in the Night series or, oh, what is that other one come? Left Behind. That's the big one now. Good entertainment? Possibly. I don't know. I've not watched them. Very poor Bible. Don't believe a thing in those videos. Because if they put what was really in the Bible in those videos, nobody would watch them. And so, uh, the, that is God's judgment is going to come at the end of this thing. It's called the tribulation period, a period of seven years. According to our scriptures, as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to find out somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of the world's population dies in less than seven years. Stop and think about that. That would be 4 billion people dead in less than seven years. The worst catastrophe known to mankind, as far as I know, has been that great tsunami in Indonesia and that place. I I believe, I don't even remember what the death toll was, but it was close to 100,000 or just over, I believe. Nothing like that has ever happened to mankind. How many hundred thousands does it take to make a billion? Then you've got four to four and a half billion people dying. It's beyond our imagination as God's judgment in its completeness is poured out upon this earth. Then will come the greatest time in all of history, the millennial kingdom. 
a thousand years where Jesus Christ will actually sit on the throne of David in the new Jerusalem and judge this world. Do you know who's going to be his helpers? It's going to be those that have believed in Jesus before the rapture. It is going to be an incredible time. It says we are made. When we start open up the book of Revelation, one of the first things it's going to teach us, thou hast made us kings and priests. Do you want to know what the world's going to be like if Jesus was in control? Get saved so you'll be there at the Millennial Kingdom and you'll get to see it. Amen? The, at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, guess what? There's going to be another judgment. The devil's going to be released. It says the armies of the world are going to be gathered to try to destroy the New Jerusalem. God is going to destroy those armies and then he's going to set up the white throne and he's going to the final judgment for the human race will happen. Now, I have no idea what's going to happen after that. I'm not going to go out on a limb like Mr. Larkin does in his book and says that God's going to give us different planets and we're going to recreate what happened and populate the entire universe. Uh, I think that's a little bizarre. Uh, the Bible says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that's where I want to be. Amen? So, we look through the Bible and we start in the beginning. God created Adam and Eve as free moral beings. They had a choice. They chose to sin. Everything that God gave them, we still see in force today. God is still the creator. He still wants our Willing obedience. And we go right down through each one of these. The law was never intended to give you salvation. It was intended to teach you about Jesus Christ. It was intended to build your faith in the one who would come. Under grace, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, under law, you had to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody said, well, what about the sacrifices? Well, let me ask you, did Daniel ever offer a sacrifice? We don't know how old he was when he was taken to the city of Babylon as a prisoner but he couldn't have done very much work. He was a very young man. He may have uh, just a few years offered the, the sacrifice of Passover and several of the others. But from the time that Daniel went into Babylon till the day he died, he'd offered no sacrifices because there was no temple in Jerusalem in the rest of his life. And he lived well into his 80s, possibly even his 90s. I believe I see Daniel in heaven because God singled him out as the, one of the three most righteous men in all the scriptures. And yet, the majority of his life, under law, he didn't offer a sacrifice. You see, that's what happens when you use dispensationalism to build doctrine rather than understand what the Bible says. Salvation was not in the sacrifices. It was in the faith that produced obedience to the law. But when God suspended the sacrifice, he didn't suspend the faith. Amen?
and we can go all the way back to Abel. Read the book of Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. The question is, do you believe this whole book? There's some pretty fantastic things in the Bible. I mean, this whole idea of the rapture is absolutely beyond human comprehension, is it not? One moment we're going to be here, the next moment we're going to be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord. That sounds a little beyond human comprehension. I believe it because the Bible says so. Yet there are hundreds of facts in this Bible that we can honestly check out. There are hundreds and hundreds of historical references that we can check out, and every one of them has been verified. There's not one verifiable error in your Bible. And so, as we look at our Bible through this way of understanding, it allows us to have one message in the Bible from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. Faith in God as our Creator, as our Savior, and as our God. And all God's people said, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We ask that you would just allow us to look and see a little bit of the bigger picture through our, our study of this subject tonight. And Lord, that salvation is always by faith in you and no other means. Lord, we ask that we would allow the Word of God to stand and that we would not try to bend the Word of God to fit our understanding, but Lord, that you would just bend our understanding to fit your Word. Lord, allow us to leave things that cannot be understood alone and to spend our time on how you would have us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll just have a moment of silence, no music tonight. If you'd like to just pray either at your seat or at the altar, and in a moment we'll end the service. But if you would like to... Just spend a few moments and then we'll get right, we'll sing our song and we'll be dismissed.